0: So we're thinking about what it means to be the church and, and also specifically what it looks like for us to be a church, church community and we'll see uh, the distinction between those two things, the church as a whole and a church as a, a local community as we go through today. Uh, today is really, a, I guess, a foundational study. On uh, understanding the nature of the church. In a way, this is actually part two. It really flows on from the message that I preached at my induction a few weeks back. If you were here you remember, we saw the story of Jacob uh, had that encounter with God in the dream with the, uh, the staircase going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Uh, and we saw that uh, the staircase wasn't there for people to climb their way up into the presence of God. The staircase staircase, symbolised uh, God himself coming down out of heaven to make his dwelling with his people and we saw that 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 whole vision was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, Uh, God with us, Emmanuel, in Christ now, God has made his dwelling place with his people so as we gather here today, we look around at one another, we can say surely God is in this place, not because it's a holy building or structure in any way but because we are his people and his dwelling is with us. And so a fitting name for a church, Bethel, the house of God. Uh, it will be helpful too uh, as we go through this series if you have a Bible with you to open up because we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures as we work through this uh, each Sunday. So please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is an interesting book because when you first read it, you might be uh, forgiven if, if you think Peter is writing to Jews because uh, through the book he uses very Jewish language. He uses a lot of uh, phrases and terminology from the Old Testament. Uh, and we saw in our reading that he even speaks about your conduct amongst the Gentiles which kind of makes you think, well, obviously these people are Jews and they're living amongst the Gentiles. But we also see a few places in this book it's clear that Peter is not just writing to Jews. He's actually writing to people who most likely uh, in the churches, majority of them were actually Gentiles. They weren't Jews at all. Um, Such as in our reading we saw you once were not a people but now in Christ you are. He's speaking to people who were Gentiles who were not a chosen people and in Christ now they have become a chosen people. And so Peter is bringing out in his letter that the church is the heir of the Old Testament promises. He's speaking to Gentiles were actually a mixture of Gentiles and Jews who were together in the churches uh, as if they were Israel, using the same kind of language and terminology that God uses in the Old Testament to Israel. Now we've, we've seen through our journey through the second half of Mark that the temple was the centre of the identity of Israel, of the Jewish people and how devastating it was in 70 AD when that temple was destroyed because that, that was the loss of everything for them. They had to completely redefine their faith and their religion because they no longer had a temple. And so modern day Judaism is extremely different to first century Judaism that had that temple at the centre. We saw how Jesus came to Jerusalem and made it very clear that that temple was going to go because the old order of things was coming to an end and in him there was going to be a new temple. He himself is the temple by which God dwells by his spirit and there will be a new form of worship that will no longer be centred on a building or a structure or uh, the priests or the sacrificial system that was there. And Jesus... uh, made it very clear that he is the stone that the builders rejected but that God selected. You see that in our reading this morning and it may ring a bell. If you remember as we were working through Mark, Jesus told this parable of the workers, the, the tenants, looking after the vineyard and the, te- the landlord sent his servants to get the fruit from the vineyard and the tenants uh, killed the servants. And then he goes on, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. So what Jesus predicted would happen there in the Gospel of Mark, Peter is saying, well it's happened. It has actually happened. The stone was rejected. The Christ was crucified, he was handed over to the Gentiles and and killed at that cross. But he is God's chosen cornerstone and in Christ the old temple is gone but there's going to be a new temple that will be built with him as the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of the new temple for God to dwell in by his spirit. And what does Peter say? Peter says, well, you, you are that temple. Jesus is the cornerstone and you are living stones that are, are lined up with this cornerstone that provides the, the orientation and makes sure the walls are straight. And God is adding living stones as he brings people into his kingdom to know him. He's adding living stones and this temple is being built up and it's us now amongst whom God dwells by his spirit. And he makes this remarkable statement in verse 7. If I remember rightly, I think I actually shared a bit on this verse here maybe a bit over a year ago or a bit bit under a year ago. He makes this this statement in verse 7. If I can find it. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. i maybe from verse 6, it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who are those who are put to shame? Those who rejected him, who didn't believe in him. But he says, for you, there is honour. Just think about that for a moment. The honour is for you, we believe. We think a lot and talk a lot about honouring God and wanting to honour Christ in his church through our worship and living for his glory. This verse is actually saying that God is at work to give honour to you, to us, the Church, those who believe the honour is for you. The Father's purpose in all things that he's been doing and through his work of redemption, salvation, is to bring honour to his Son. So the goal of all things is that every creature in heaven and earth will will bow the knee, And will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and all creatures will honour the Son. And the goal of the Son, through all things, is to give honour to the Father because every creature will bow the knee and declare Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that the goal of all creation and everything that has been happening is that God Himself might be glorified, that God might be honoured. And the Father has a plan to honour His Son, and His plan to honour His Son is achieved through the formation of the church. Uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 how uh, what God has done for us by choosing us, by raising us with Christ, by seating us with Him in the heavenly places. And he says, all all that we might be for the praise of His glorious grace. It's grace. God could have glorified Himself in some other way. He could have just uh, visibly made His glory seen by every creature and every creature would bow down, fall on their face and worship him and glorify him as God. But because of his grace, his plan is that he would be glorified through us. And so the the great goal of history is not just that Jesus Christ will stand there in all glory and every creature will bow and give him honour, but by his side will be his pure, spotless, glorious bride and honour will be given to this bride, to the church. God's goal for his church is honour and glory because that is the way that he will bring honour and glory to his son So we see that these Old Testament statements about Israel are applied to the church uh, in our passage, or right through the book of 1 Peter, but specifically here uh, he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, called out of darkness into light. God's people, recipients of mercy, Particularly those first three there, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Can you see that that is God bestowing honour upon his people? You are chosen. God the Father honours his people. He chooses us. He lifts us up to a place where we are royal and we are dedicated to his service a royal priesthood. And he says, you are my possession, my treasured possession. I place great value upon you. Now these these were the three things that God said to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. And as he was entering into a covenant relationship with them at Sinai, he says, this is what you will be. You will be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people from his own for his own possession. Uh, but then the, those next three are also uh, how God speaks about His Old Testament people, Israel, uh, called out of darkness, the darkness of slavery and death in Egypt, into the light, the light of knowing Him and His Word and His revelation to them. They were known as God's people. And all the way through their history, when they deserved death and judgement and to be cut off, he continually has mercy upon them. So all these pictures of God dealing with Israel in the Old Testament, he says, this is you, this is the church. You are the same as these people. So, mercy. So how do we think then about the church and particularly the church in its relationship to Israel in light of these things? Some people would say, well, the church is an addition to Israel. So Israel was chosen uh, at, at Sinai uh, and they have a history that will continue right through as a distinct people. And then with the coming of Jesus... This new group of people comes up and it's the church and the two kind of run parallel. Uh, Israel kind of takes a bit of a, a backstage for a while uh, as God is bringing people into the church but the time will come when there will be a renewal, a revival of Israel and then uh, depending on who you speak to, some will say, well, these two people will continue forever in the new creation as two separate people. Others will say, well, no, when Jesus returns and all things are wrapped up, then there will be one people made up of Jews and Gentiles uh, in, the, in that one people of God. There's one way that people have, have seen it. Some people say, well, actually, you know, the church is a replacement of Israel. So, Israel was just for the Old Testament times, and with the coming of Jesus and the destruction of the temple, that was the end of it for the Jews. They rejected their Messiah, so that's it. No more for the Jews. Uh, God's work now only is through the church and we we replace Israel as a new, a diff- still a different people of God but a new people of God that by his grace may also include some ethnic Jewish people. Um, I was once um, accused of this view and so much so that they said, well, if you hold this view, then you're actually a false teacher. Um, They held the first view, you see, and obviously your salvation depends on how you view Israel according to this person. Um, Now, they're they're two views that people have come to with with a sincere reading and study of the Scripture. Um, I think there's actually a better way of seeing the relationship between the Church and Israel, and that is... Well, all, through all history, there has only ever been one people. That one people has, has been the church. Those who are called and chosen by God. But we just see that, that people of God expressed or manifested in two, historic, two ways historically. Uh, before Christ, it was displayed in the national ethnic people of Israel. Now after Christ, now that the gospel is going to people of all nations and all tribes, all tongues, all people, that people is expressed in the church which is made up of people from all nations, Jew, Gentile, um, Australian, Chinese, Vietnamese, you name it. Um, but really there have just been one people. There hasn't been a replacement, there hasn't been a two people running at parallel at the same time. God has, knows those who are His. And ever since Adam and Eve, He has been calling people to Himself. When we talk about the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed, that's what we, we're not just speaking about the fact that our two congregations are one people, or that we are one with the church down around the corner. We're saying we are one with Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Abel, and Eve, all those who lived by faith are one in this people throughout history. kind of expands your your vision of the church, doesn't it? We're not just a little group meeting here today. We are part of a great company of people, this great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. Let's go now across to to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. I'll just quickly mention too that um, this is my first time at trying this, obviously, as you know, and I'm not sure exactly how long all this is going to take, so I apologise in advance if I end up going a little bit over time. Um if I do go over time and you think it was too long, let me know um, and I'll make sure I keep to time next week. If, you, if I do go over time and you think, oh, that was all good anyway, we don't mind you going over time, whatever overtime is, and that'll be fine too. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll read from verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the bearers made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So that's the that's the old order something that can be touched. Uh, he's speaking here about Mount Sinai, but that that was carried on then into the tabernacle and the temple. You you cannot enter into the holy place in the tabernacle, otherwise you will die. God he who is he was, uh, defined, expressed, his presence is expressed in this physical building that you can touch, which... If, if you were unworthy to come into his presence, it brought fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. These are all things that we we cannot touch physically with our hands, but they are actually the realities that Mount Sinai pointed forward to. And he goes on and says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking because the reality has come. But I want to uh, pick up on just that one statement he makes there in verse 23 where he talks about the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word he uses there is ecclesia uh, or ecclesia in which we get our word ecclesiastical and it's the word most often used in the New Testament for church. Whenever we see the word church in our English translations, generally most of the time it is translating this word ekklesia. Uh, Literally it means congregation or those who are called out. Ek means out and kaleo is called. So, a congregation, an ecclesia is a group of people who have come out in order to gather together to be a people. When uh, Wycliffe was translating the Scriptures and 95% of the King James Version is his, his work, he actually translated that word, ecclesia, as congregation and when when his work was given to the church to be authorised and become the King James Version, one of the things that the church officials said was, we don't really like this translation of congregation for church because people are thinking church, they think institution, they think us, they think the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope and and the Archbishops, not the Pope because they were Protestants, the Archbishops and the institution to which they had to submit and to which they gave their tithes and offerings. We depend upon the people to give us money so we can build our cathedrals. And they said, we want to keep this word church because it will help us to have keep that control over the people. And I think Wycliffe would have turned in his grave to think that they had wanted to do that and so ever since then all of our English translations translate this word church and maybe that's the reason why very often people have a misunderstanding of the nature of church. They think of it as an institution or an organisation or a group of people who are in authority or power over people in really it means a congregation, people who gather together for a special, specific purpose. We saw that, uh, that concept in our reading 1 Peter 2. You have been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Deuteronomy 4.10, Moses is talking about the people of Israel and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word there is ekklesia, the assembly, the congregation of God's people. So it's a word that was applied to the Old Testament people. And we even have a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes which is a book that was designed to be read to the congregation, to the gathering of people in order to teach them. So the church essentially is a gathering. is people being called out and being brought together. And in, in two senses we see this. We are gathered by and to the Father. That's the work of redemption that the Father has been doing through all history, is uh, choosing and saving and justifying and sanctifying people for himself, people to whom he will say, you are my people and I am your God. That's the work that Jesus came to do when he was praying his final prayer to the Father, he talked about how, you know, I, I have taken those whom you have given me and I, none of them have been lost. And he, he uses this language of gathering the Father's people so that he can bring them into the Father's presence and know him. So the church are those who have been gathered by the Father to know the Father as his children, as his firstborn sons, as heirs of the promise. And this is what theologians uh, sometimes call the invisible or universal church, the church worldwide. Uh, The Lord knows those who are His, even if we don't know those who are His, those whom He has chosen and predestined and called and justified and glorified. it's, It's a people that we ourselves cannot define, we cannot... Put boundaries around it and say, I know who is truly a Christian and who isn't. In the end, uh, only God knows those who are His. All we can do in the church is urge one another to make our calling and election sure. uh, To urge one another to know that we truly do belong to the Father and are gathered by Him. But the other, the flip side of that is, The church are those who are gathering with one another. What's the point of gathering? It's so that you may be together, you may be with one another. There's no such thing as a lone Christian. Even even a Christian who may be in somewhere like Iran, who has come to faith through a tract or the scriptures and knows no other believer... They they are actually part of the church. They they are never on their own. But this this idea is that we are gathered by the Father to the Father so that we may be together as his people. And this is what theologians call the visible or the local church. So um, in the last few weeks I've been trying to get to know people and... um, I see faces here on Sunday and in my mind I say, okay, are are they a visitor or are they a member of this church? And I think I'm slowly kind of working out who who we say is part of the church here at Bethel, at Norwood. Um, That's not to say that everyone here involved or connected with this church or even everyone here this morning is part of the invisible church. There may be someone here who doesn't actually know the Father through through Jesus' His Son, but you're still part of this visible church, part of this gathering that comes here every Sunday to meet together. And great emphasis is put in the New Testament on this expression of the church, the visible local church, Most of the books in the New Testament are letters written to the church in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Rome. It is addressed to the gathering of God's people and sometimes you see in these letters a there's there's no assuming that everyone in that church is actually a true believer. Uh, Sometimes the, the writers speak to those in that church who are in danger of Uh, what we call falling away, in other words just drifting away or stepping out of the church uh, and calling them to know Christ in that context. So the local gathering, the visible expression of God's people here in this building and in the building just down the road and around the corner and over there and you know, everywhere around the world this morning we see the visible church gathering. Uh, and there are three key things that the, that we gather for, the purpose for our gathering. First is worship. We are here to to sing our praises and to honour uh, the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, to worship him. And that's the, that's the goal of all things, isn't it? that all creatures will worship him. So as we gather here and worship God, we are experiencing a foretaste of the new creation when every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth will be worshipping him. Then there's nurture. We might call it encouragement or discipleship. We come here to build one another up in love and so we may grow together in our faith and be strengthened in him and stand firm uh, in our faith. And thirdly, there's proclamation. We're not just here for ourselves, are we? We exist here, and it's in our church constitution, we exist here in order to proclaim the gospel so that those outside the, the walls of this church uh, might hear the good news and be gathered by the Father into his family. You think of it in a visual way. There's the world in which we live and within the world is the church, God's chosen people, especially for his possession, that he says, you are precious in my eyes and you belong to me. At the centre of the church is Christ and the church is the body of Christ, is the visible uh, expression, in a sense, of the glory of Christ. The, The radiance that the perfect bride will have, when she stands there without spot or stain or wrinkle or blemish, will actually be the glory of Christ in her and through her. And so the church, with all its weaknesses and foibles and sins and failures, actually displays the glory of Christ and initial way that we display the glory of Christ is that we come here every Sunday morning and gather as his people. And someone might come in and look at us and think, wow, what's these people together? They're all different. They're such a hodgepodge. There's a mixture. Now, I couldn't imagine these people hanging out together socially because you know, in another context they probably wouldn't even get along together. We display the glory of Christ as we come and we say, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we worship Christ and we come together, our focus is on him and bringing honour and glory to him in our songs and our prayers, uh, in the the message that we hear. We care for one another, we nurture, we disciple, uh, we look after one another's uh, temporal needs and one another's spiritual needs uh, and together we grow up and become mature as the church. And then we proclaim Christ. Christ who is at the centre of our community our gathering, we take him and we proclaim him to those around us. Whether it's an official uh, program of the church that does that or whether it's each of us Uh, in our day-to-day lives through the week as we've been nurtured and encouraged as we gather we go out and we proclaim Jesus to those around us. So Jesus is building his church with living stones and the the passage that we're, we're going to focus on over the next four weeks or really not focus on but use as a Springboard for what we'll be looking at over the next four weeks is Acts two forty-two to forty-seven, which we read uh, earlier, and I'll just read it out again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, there was a particular outworking for the first Christians in Jerusalem when they heard the gospel, and that was in this uh, selling their homes and distributing food to anyone who had need. Because there, there was no social welfare programs in first century Roman Empire or in Jerusalem. And if someone became a Christian, uh, most often it meant ostracized, being ostracised from your family, being ostracised from your synagogue. And so if you were a widow or an orphan or someone who was in need... And your family had cut you off, and your synagogue community had cut you off. There was nothing, and so the the natural expression of these first Christians as they came together was this radical generosity. Oh well, yes, I'll sell my house because you're in need. Just this, I'll I'll lay down my life and give up all I have so that I can help my brother or my sister. But that was that was an outworking of The four things that took place whenever these first Christians gathered. There was the Apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And the way it's worded there in the the original is there's the at the beginning of each of those. So it wasn't just kind of a a general thing that happened. There's this sense of intentionality. The Apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers were specific things they came with the intention of practising these things as they gathered together. And uh, as I said, these are the things that we're going to flesh out over the next four weeks, what each of these four things mean. But what we'll see is that these are gifts given by the triune God to his church, expressed in our joyful obedience to his command. So, in a sense, the spirit was at work in the church and these things were being manifested as God was at work, but they're also things that they understood, these are things that God is calling us to do. These are commands that we are to obey, to actively obey. So they just kind of sit there think, okay, we'll just wait for it all to happen. They heard the word preached and they said, there is a command and because we are set free in Christ, we have the freedom now to joyfully obey his commands and express these things in the life of our community. So with all that in mind, we can ask that question. Again, why do I go to church? Lots of different reasons people may give. I go there to seek God. I go there because my friends are there. I go there because there's an awesome worship experience. I go there because it's my duty. God will be happy with me if I do. There many reasons we may give for why we go to church. Let's see... Uh, oh. Uh, Do I see church as a place or event that I attend or a community to whom I belong? And that's why I put go to church in inverted commas. Uh, Do we go to church as if church is a a thing, a place, a building that we go to? Do Do we think of ourselves as, okay, church is what happens in those two hours on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week is something something else? Or do we think, no, actually, the church, the church is the gathering that the Father has brought together. The church is a community, and I belong in that community. I'm a part of that community. As, as much as a, a LGBT activist today will stand up and say, I am a member of the LGBT community, or a, um, an Indigenous Australian will say, I am, I am a black person, I am part of this people. In the same way, our identity is we are part of the church, it is our community to whom we belong. We belong to one another. Let's see what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the, the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. why why did the writer of Hebrews go to church? There's a few things in there, but it seems to me, the utmost thing on his mind was because I want to encourage my brothers and sisters as we look forward to the day. Um, I, I gather together because the Father has gathered us together for a purpose because you know, I, could, I could get the Apostles teaching on my own. I could download some sermons from the internet or read it in a book. I could pray on my own. I, I can seek God, I can know communion with God on my own. But can I have fellowship? Can I show hospitality, the breaking of bread? There are th- things about the church that have to happen as we come together, as we come to worship but also as we come to nurture and encourage one another. We so often have, I think, a consumer mindset when we think about church. And it's because it's the way we operate all the time. All of our lives we're surrounded by consumerism. We turn on the TV, consumerism, I'm not just talking about the ads. Or even product placement within, you know, the producers of every TV show you watch have done their research and they've worked out how to produce a TV show That will make you feel good and will give you what you think you need so that you'll watch it. That's the, that's the basis on which they sell their show to the TV networks. And the TV networks then say, well, is this a show we want to air? Will there be enough advertisers who will want to advertise during this show? It's all about consumerism, about giving you what you think you need. You need a new fridge. Well, you think, okay, what I want is I want the best quality fridge for the lowest possible price and I want a fridge that's going to perfectly suit my needs. It's got to have a nice dispenser, it's got to have a certain size freezer and certain shelves and racks. So that's consumerism. I want something that's going to meet my needs. And then when I want my fridge, I go to Harvey Norman or the good guys and I walk in and there are 50 fridges that I can choose from and I can pick the one that is perfect for me. So, at the heart of consumerism is choice. I don't want to just have one. I want to be able to be in control and choose the one that I want and there's this this desire to fulfil and meet my needs. So, consumerism says I will buy in because of the return like Jin's example. I pay my membership fee, but what am I going to get back? So I'll I'll be in something if I know I'm going to get back equal or or more in return for what I've put in. And that's contractual thinking. That says, um, I'll give you money and you give me the product, and if the product doesn't measure up to the amount of money I gave you, then I will pull out of the contract and you have to give me my money back. That's contractual thinking. And so in that kind of thinking, I come to get. So, will this church meet my needs? Why do I go to church? Well, because I feel happy or there are people who look after me or I enjoy the worship or whatever it might be. But can you see that consumeristic thinking is actually about me? I will only invest if I'm going to get returns. So I'll go to this church because I think I'm going to get something out of it for myself. And so that then flows into, well, if I don't get, why bother coming? I I imagine um, probably most people who stop attending church would say, well, I wasn't really getting much out of it or there wasn't, there wasn't a program for me or something that met my needs, or I just didn't, wasn't enjoying it as much as I thought I should. That's the consumerism mindset. Or we might, we might have that thinking, but the, the mindset that says, well, hang on, I still need to do my religious duty, by going to church, that might actually override all of that thinking, and so we come anyway because we think somehow we're making God happy with us for being here and participating. Rather, we're called to live under grace. Grace completely undermines and knocks this consumerism, contractual thinking out of the water. Grace says, "I will be sold out because of the promise." Covenant is where two people make a promise to one another and when you make a promise you say, I will be faithful in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, in richer or for poorer, to death do us part. Any of us who are married have entered into a covenant relationship which says, I will be faithful even if you don't keep your side of the bargain. And that's the relationship that the Father has entered into with us through the Son. It says, even if you are faithless, I will remain faithful. I will be true to my promise. And so rather than thinking I'll be in this because i get return, you come in and you, you've already come in with a security. So I'm, I'm living in the promises. I have received everything that God has promised me so I don't have to worry about what I can get for myself anymore. I'm secure in the Father's love for me. And so I'm free now uh, to come and to, to give, to give of myself, to be sold out rather than buying in. So I come to receive and give. The difference between receiving and getting is when you get something, you take the initiative to get it. When you receive something, that other person has taken the initiative to give to you and you just freely receive. And the fruit of receiving is thankfulness, not pride that I've, I've achieved it. So I come to receive and give. So we come to church thinking, well, how might I be a part of what God is doing in this church? It's not about what I can get, it's about what God is doing. How can I be a part of what God is working in his grace amongst his people? And so because I have received, I will come to give, to love, to serve. The church is Jesus' gift to us because it gives us opportunity to love God and love our neighbour as ourselves. Just quickly to finish off, just some quick points from that passage in Hebrews 10. We come and we hear of the faithfulness of God. Um, I lost lost the reference there. Oh yes, um, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So as we come together, we hear the words of the Father being faithful to us of his giving to us and we, so we come to receive and as we receive of his faithfulness we have this sense of hope. Um, we stand firm on our confession of hope. Uh, we're told that we, we come to stir one another up to love and good works. You know, James says, what's the point of coming in hearing the word of God? Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Well, how can I be encouraged to be a doer, what's when my brothers and sisters gather around me and spur me on to love and good works, who encourage me to actually put the word of God into action in my life. Uh, To encourage one another. The word there means build up, strengthen, mature, become strong. And it's all in light of the day, the approaching day, when we will see Jesus in all his glory and when we will stand by his side as his perfect spotless bride.